I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. Behind almost every philanthropic foundation, there is a plan and a goal to be a perpetual endowment. This has caused some foundations to focus more on organizational survival and asset preservation at the expense of achieving their mission. Could foundations be more effective in addressing the pressing problems in our communities by spending those assets? Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Astrid Schultz, the CEO of Sfera, a for-purpose, for-profit tech company dedicated to accelerating the pace of change. She's also the co-author of the Zebra's Manifesto, a call to action for companies that build ambitious technology for systemic change. I'm also excited to have Matthew Weatherly-White joining us. Matthew is the a principal architect of Caprock's impact investment platform and the creator of the now independent impact reporting platform, IPAR. We start the conversation today uh, first by unpacking and defining philanthropy's original intent. Hey, Matthew and Astrid, thanks for being on today's program. Uh, this actually came out of... Um, a Twitter conversation we had uh, probably six, seven weeks ago. Um, I think in the midst of COVID, just looking at how foundations and philanthropy was responding and the limitations on on what's become uh, kind of written to stone, if you will, on on how foundations deploy deploy their assets, manage their wealth, um, provide provide funding for charities. Um, and so it's, it's great to talk about it today, I think, to dive into kind of the history of philanthropy, what got us here, and kind of some of the current practice, and to, and to start to, uh, to explore, you know, what, what are some things that we could consider uh, looking to the future to, to really do, to do more good with the money that we have, uh, to maximize uh, the impact um, with the, the assets that, that uh, foundations have. Um, so kind of starting off, you know, there's a, I'm sure there's more current statistics and Astrid, you might specifically know this just as a student of philanthropy, but you know, in 2006, it's, it's, it was, there are over 72,000 grant making foundations, uh, and the total assets of nearly $615 billion with a yearly giving of 39 billion. Um, this was roughly 3% of the national GDP for that year. So, you know, large amount of capital, um, and I'm sure it's it's grown since then as well. But let's talk a little bit of history, Astrid. Given your kind of your background, let's, if you would, kind of go into how you got here. I and mean, you've got a PhD from uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, you're a student of, of economics, uh, but but also many other things. Uh, you're currently uh, running the Zebras Unite movement uh, as a as a co-founder and and also a tech startup. So really impressive background, but. Uh, I think well positioned to talk on this topic of, of philanthropy and how we got here. So uh, could you help kind of set the stage? How, how did we get to this point? Um, and, and if you would start maybe by defining what we mean by philanthropy, um, like philanthropic capital, because I think sometimes people get confused <laughs> by that. Uh, and then if we could start there and then like how this morphed over the, over the last hundred years plus. Jeez, how much time have we got? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're defining that Astrid and not me. <laughs> Right. In as succinct as possible. <laughs> right. Uh, so I am a recovering nonprofit executive, right? So my, my study of philanthropy almost comes entirely from being on the receiving end of uh, charitable donations and contributions to things I worked on over a 15-year career that I have since exited and have turned myself into a tech entrepreneur and various other things. Uh, and I am, as you pointed out, I also have a degree in economics. And so I, um, I tend to take a sort of an institutional economics viewpoint on, on um, businesses that I encounter and, 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 and uh, industries that I encounter, right? And as you pointed out, philanthropy in this country and other countries is, a, is, a, is, a big, is big business. Some people refer to it as the philanthro-industrial complex. Uh, it employs a lot of people. It has lots of assets under management. I think globally, it's approaching two trillion, and uh, and 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 it's become very influential, right? In the in sort of the course of uh, our our lives, um, because of course markets and governments um, aren't entirely succeeding in meeting all the needs that we have, and so philanthropy and uh, nonprofit organizations have have grown into essentially a third sector. That that steps in where where markets and governments fall short, and so that right there makes it very influential. Um, as to the origins, um, I mean, it literally translates into love of humanity, right? And has its um, has its uh, origins in in charity, uh, really in a in a moral imperative uh, to to give and to take care of others, 
um, that has a number of different expressions and different uh, cultural and spiritual traditions. Um, and out of that, and it's, you know, you're, if you're, if you're uh, God-faring in any way, you're familiar with uh, concepts of tithing, for example, right? Giving 10% uh, of your disposable income. Uh, and that has expressions in a number of religions, right? Where, where people sort of habitually uh, set aside a number of their personal resources to essentially help others. And that broadly fits under the rubric of charity. Uh, in in more recent times, right, and so there you have a lot of, um, and I'm not a, I, I am by, by no means an authority on the on the history of philanthropy. I'm sure if you Googled it, you, you'd find a more interesting Wikipedia article on it than than what I can recite here. Uh, but but to fast forward a little bit, I mean, what's what's become interesting um, from my perspective is in the last 150 or so years, right? You had this incredible um, wealth. Uh, that that arose in in countries certainly like the U.S., where you had essentially industrialists and people who became very very successful of being um, sort of the early industrialists and you know the rubber barons, if you will, of uh, of this new world, uh, new new to some. Uh, of course, there there were people here before, um, but there were people who became very very rich, right? Uh, Andrew Carnegie being among them, the Rockefellers among them, and. Um, like even giving away 10% of your personal wealth in a lifetime would not have amounted to very much, right? And so there was, there's a, and this is a slightly abbreviated version of what happens here, but, but the, you basically ended up um, uh, with more wealth at the end of your life than you or your, your heirs knew what to do with, right? And so there is a really interesting um, origin, I think, in contemporary philanthropy in how do you preserve assets? How do you preserve that value? How do you put it? How do you how do you put your resources to work after you're gone, right? And so, uh, I think the modern form of a foundation um, was created with uh, sort of a viewpoint of you know basically not penalizing the heirs, uh, essentially achieving tax savings or tax a tax benefit, right? By putting it into uh, a charitable purpose. Uh, for some period of time, and and then you basically had a had a more manageable amount of wealth that could get passed on, right? And and at the same time, back to the origins and charity, like a lot of early philanthropists, like I mean Carnegie is known for his public libraries, right? Like there was this there was this um, tie-in with doing good onto others, right? And that in some cases um, had a very paternalistic. Um, uh, bend right from the get-go. So there is enshrined, in my opinion, in the origins of philanthropy, both the preservation of wealth um, and the preservation of the, the wealth owner's intentions uh, combined with this slightly uh, or, or overtly a sort of paternalistic, oh, of course, we're helping the widows and, uh, uh, and people coming back hurt from various wars. And of course, we're, we're you know, but there's this sort of this slightly, um, yeah, I'm just going to keep. No, but it, it, that's, you bring sense. up an interesting point because I think there there are clearly origins of uh, the good of humanity, but in everything there's also the the negative origins, right? So, and I think there's it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag in capitalism. I mean, Matthew, you talk on this a lot um, around just the origins of capitalism and the purpose of capitalism. Um, but, and we can dive into some of that as it relates to kind of this conversation, but philanthropy is the same thing. I mean, I think there's, there is the goodness of humanity and the desire to support community, but then, then what happens that it, it, things start to creep in. And it's interesting as I did a little research and some of the things Astrid you sent over were just fascinating. Uh, some of these articles on the mid 1900s where philanthropy as, as an institution, this, uh, this third sector, as you talk about really emerged at the end of the 1800s, uh, the last, uh, two centuries ago, rather, um, but really kind of took shape in the middle of the last century, in the 1950s and the 1960s, where it had started to be used more as a tax shelter, uh, a tax avoidance structure for corporations to um, to really pass wealth on generationally. And then the government kind of stepped in in the 1960s and, and started to kind of address some of that, or tried to. Uh, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit from your perspective, what, what really went on in the 1950s, 1960s, and really kind of has become more of what we know as today, the 5% rule, yeah. uh, the interperpetuity existence of foundations, uh, that yeah, really isn't that old. 
<laughs> yeah, it's not that old, right? And it's actually fascinating when you do some of that reading. And I don't know if you have a way of uh, sharing some of those resources with your listeners, but it's it's fascinating when you actually dive into some of the, the sort of literature on it, right? Like there was a basically a sense that um, foundations ended up having a lot of discretion over how they were harnessing their assets and uh, were getting themselves into a bit of trouble, certainly from a perception uh, point, that they were actually reinvesting those tax sheltered assets in ways that are ended up generating uh, income, including for family members. Uh, you know, this is these are still the first generation, second generation trustees of these family fortunes, right? And so there was a move, I guess, to make sure that the charitable purpose finds continual expression. And that's where uh, the floor, really, the 5% rule came from, right? That, that a minimum of, and it's a minimum, that's important, of 5% is, is actually uh, uh, dispersed every year in the form of charitable contributions, presumably to, to uh, other organizations. Yeah. And we see that, I mean, time and time again, that it's just, it's funny because we, I had this conversation recently with Maurice at LISC on new market tax credits. And it's interesting how the original intent was to invest in operating companies to provide capital. But what happened was the first couple of examples that made it through were real estate deals. And mm -hmm. so out of a thousand real estate deals, only a couple of them are operating companies because you, you basically create a, a form that everybody becomes familiar with. And that's what you start to do. Um, when that wasn't the original intent, it just so happened to be a package. Oh, done, done, done. And you can just kind of, you know, stamp this thing. And that's kind of what's happened with the 5%. It's, it's a minimum. Uh, and the fact that you exist in perpetuity is not a requirement. Um, there's no mandate from the government that says you have to maintain your assets. Uh, in fact, what I found in the reading, you sent over this article and, and we can definitely share it. Uh, Thomas Troyer is a is a as uh, an accountant and he worked at Treasury in the mid 1960s and he wrote this fascinating piece and in the introduction he says that the enactment of the 1969 private foundation legislation as it was enacted it, it drifts from the past and those directly involved in the event largely disappear from the scene and fall silent uh, mythology far from absent even in 1969 often squeezes out fact and I think what he's trying to get at is like we start to just do business and the practice of philanthropy and we, we think this is how it's always done. And we never question the, the, the way in which philanthropy is deployed to support communities and to help them thrive. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that was pretty profound because some of the things that were put forward uh, by then Senator Al Gore Sr. Um, were that fa private foundations would be required to sunset in 25 years. Uh, what inevitably went to the Senate floor was a 40-year sunset and it was, it was pushed down and it's never been readdressed again. Which, and so in my reading, I was as a person that works in private foundations, I was floored. I had no clue. I had no re real uh, understanding of, of that uh, reality and that history. You know, it gets even more interesting when you look at the, the number of foundations that do choose to sunset. Uh, last time I looked you, uh, because I was sort of curious about this, right? You hear about these spend down foundations and when you look at the kinds of things they fund, you realize a lot of them are more on the right side of the political spectrum. Mm. You know, the Olin Foundation is famous for the way they went on, uh, you know, went about their, their sunsetting and creating all this infrastructure, all these networks for essentially neoconservative leadership in this country that is still doing its work like years after the foundation went out of business. Wow. Now, if you're after impact, that is a very, very, very effective strategy. You know, wow. it doesn't mean I like their politics or anything, right? But in terms of achieving maximum impact, that was a heck of an effective strategy. And then on the more left side of the spectrum, you have these you know, social justice foundations that exist in perpetuity and they meet out their 5% every year. And it's sort of this, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom approach, uh, make cutting small checks to many, many organizations. And well, who's been more effective in the last 50 years in terms of perpetuating a, a truly global sort of mindset that has permeated all walks and all areas of life. Yeah. Well, I, I think Olin, Olin wins on that front, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I do want to get to the complications of, or at least some of the indictments against uh, sunsetting or the difficulties of that. Cause there are some, uh, some in, in uh, written down um, on the, on online, uh, but Matthew, let's, let's turn to you. Um, so your, your background is in uh, capital formation 
Uh, it's in investment banking. You're a partner at the Caprock Group. Uh, so you speak prolifically on, on, and you work with families on how to think about wealth management, how to think about their philanthropy, how to align their values and their purpose with, with their money. So help us understand, you know, there's the history, the 1969 um, Senate uh, legislation that uh, basically nothing has been picked up since then, but what are foundations doing? What are families doing? What questions are they asking themselves? And what's the current landscape and, and practice look like? Yeah, you, you nailed it earlier, Bryce, talking about the the um, the mythology that has replaced fact. And you know, I was going to go in a totally different direction with this, but that using that word mythology, and I remember reading that in um, the piece that Astrid shared, it, it's it sort of sparked a different um, train of thought in, in my head. And, you know, mythology is really nothing more than a, a series of stories that we tell ourselves to explain this otherwise inexplicable world around us. And it's very easy to use the word mythology to apply to indigenous cultures because the explanations that they derived were so absent of science that it's easy for us to see them as myths. Mm. But I would use a slightly different word because I think in this case, it's more culture. And I think that culture and foundations, much like mythology and in, in, in some sort of earlier civilizations, you know, culture is really nothing more than a series of interlocking narratives that in the absence of of self-interrogation or inquiry allow us to operate with an enormous number of default settings that rationally justify our own existence, right? That's sort of what our the sort of philanthropic culture is to me. And it was like you, I was stunned by the, the, the dialogue in that paper um, that, that Astrid shared because it just, it struck me so powerfully that the culture around foundations is simply a story we've told ourselves. Like it's, there's, there's nothing to it. So, you know, what, what I wanted to, so I just wanted to flag that and say that it is nothing more than a narrative. And the narrative, like any other narrative can be shifted. The question is how do you shift it and to what end does, does one try to shift it? So, um, you know, first of all, I'm really privileged to work with a relatively small number of super innovative foundations. And so I don't work in the conventional foundation world where they're sort of trying to optimize for financial return with, with, with sort of one strategy and sort of meet that minimum 5% requirement somewhat reluctantly um, with, with sort of the other strategy and, you know, the phrase that you use so effectively at Access Ventures is that sort of two-pocket mindset. And so we're really lucky that the foundations we work with don't typically have that two-pocket mindset. Um, and so what we see with the foundations that, that we're working with is how do they advance the programs and how do they advance the mission while using the invested corpus? And sometimes that puts the notion of perpetuity, perpetuity at risk, particularly if the mission or program-related investments can't necessarily generate a historical market rate of return, which would insulate themselves from the 5% spending requirement in addition to the administrative cost of running the operation. And so there's that, that sort of risk is clearly on the table. But with only one of our foundations, are they intentionally trying to sunset? And they're trying to sunset not through purely accelerating programmatic distributions, but through a totally creative, innovative, and yet, and as yet somewhat unclearly defined strategy of transferring the wealth of the foundation into the wealth of the, of the communities mm -hmm. in which they're making their programmatic work. And so it's like a different mindset, but yeah. there's not a really clear answer yet how to do that. Um, so I think that as much as I would love for the conversation to shift so that foundations saw themselves as the R and D capital for a different kind of economy, sort of impact regenerative circular economy that creates wealth um, in the communities that have been largely marginalized by the current functioning capitalism. I don't see that very often. What I see much more often, and even among our, like, as I said, really innovative, I would say sometimes even aggressive um, foundations, it's like what they're really looking for is a way to simultaneously invest with mission and continue to operate in perpetuity. I mean, that, that's where, like, that's where I see most of it. I just don't, I just don't see that conversation happening often at the board level. Um, and, you know, we, we talked a, lo a little bit about this in prep for this call. And I think yeah. that, you know, job preservation, um, career preservation, those are all very subtle, but really powerful. Um, yeah. Let's, let's camp out. Aspects. Let's camp out there. Cause I I'll think stop. I love, no, 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 it's great. Your, your comment on culture. I think it's helpful. And Astrid as a fund Razor, um, you can, but I'd love from, for both of you and, and myself to kind of batter around where does the problem lie? You know, as we think about, 
Um, is it the boards? Is it the investment committees? Is it the staffs? Is it legislation? So if we think about creativity, uh, better alignment of capital with purpose, where, where are we seeing friction? Is it all of the above? Cause you know, I'll go in and I'll talk with, with foundations and the staff sometimes are on board, but in the back of their mind, they have been programmed or enculturated to, to, to do the work of philanthropy and they don't understand this, this other thing. I understand this. I don't understand that. So where does the problem lie and how, how can we start to address some of that? Well, I think Matthew is um, very fortunate that he works with foundations that have overcome the two-pocket thinking, right? I think yeah. that's that's probably the, in my in my opinion, that's the biggest problem, right? That you have the programmatic staff isolated from the investment staff and not really integrated very well in 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 the majority of vast majority of foundations, right? Like so much so that they either they have to either defer to them or or they they really only view the part of their programmatic funding as the tool that they have with which they can enter into the world, right? And when you think about what that is, I mean, your programmatic funding, your grant making, that is money with a minus 100% financial return expectation, right? And then if you get into, uh, if you maybe, but if you used your entire uh, set of assets, your entire balance sheet, right? Imagine all the other things you could be doing uh, as a foundation, right? You could, you could make, um, you know, very risky investments that, you know, some of which default. And so you may still have a small loss of minus 5%, but you know what, that's better than minus 100%. Or you could use your balance sheet to act as loan loss reserves or loan guarantees, which on average is a 0% return, but how impactful that would be in so many areas of social justice uh, that, that foundations care about, right? And then you go into the positive re financial return part of the capital spectrum where you know, as an impact investor, you might are looking. We might be looking at concessionary returns of between you know whatever one and five percent, and then down the list. But but that is not a continuum of management in foundations, right? You have the you have the the program staff who are sitting on the minus one hundred percent side. Then they sometimes have impact investing staff that sort of straddles the zero, uh, ver, you know, at point, and then you have the the professional investment uh, staff that are sitting firmly on. The side of where they're, you know, investing in hedge funds and private equity and venture funds, because not only are they trying to get market rate returns, but they're really trying to get above market rate returns, right? When you look at a at an endowment the size of the Ford Foundation, well, for, what is it, twelve billion or so? Three three of those billions are invested in in private equity and venture, right? And those are not ten percent return expectations; those are way higher return expectations. Yeah, so let's camp out there a little bit, like. Uh... Uh, How, market returns yeah the ultimate i, I wrote a blog piece almost a decade ago now calling market rate returns like the ultimate red herring in this conversation and yes. um and, and, and sort of upon more reflection like one of the reasons i really think that's an accurate way to think about it is that you know market rate returns are based upon historical assessment of asset class performance. That's how we sort of get to our capital market return assumptions and how we sort of get to our modeling around what kind of returns we can expect from our different asset classes. But, you know, the last 35 years have been defined by a handful of really powerful tailwinds, lower taxation, deregulation, the addition of a billion person labor pool into the global, um, global you know, labor pool, um, tightening global supply chains, relatively inexpensive um, uh, oil, um, you know, energy, um, and those tailwinds aren't going to repeat themselves, right? So by, by definition, we're sitting on sort of a 25 to 35 year historical rate of return period, which have been extractive, you know, totally extractive. If we can't repeat those, how do we convince ourselves that the return assumptions that we're baking into our modeling are even remotely achievable over the next 25 years? Now, there will be pockets of that where we'll absolutely see that level of return. I mean, I think the transition to a renewable energy-based energy complex is going to offer extraordinary investment opportunity. Mm. But that doesn't mean that those in aggregate, those those historical returns are going to be replicated over the next 25 years. And so, you know, that like that's number one. But then I also think like this, this obsession with market rate returns, which in a sense sort of sidesteps that long-term asset liability maturing exercise that foundations should be really focused on um, if, if, you know, presuming they want to exist in perpetuity, you know, again, it, it like, it, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't dilute, but it, it, it distorts, it distorts the conversation around the, 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 
the suite of investment opportunities that Astrid outlined uh, a moment ago, right? Ranging from, you know, net incremental loss of investment capital by taking uh, highly risky investment strategies to concessionary capital returns in the sort of one to five range. And then, you know, above that with some, you know, higher targeted return investments. And I think, well, so Matthew, so how do, how do we address some of these, some of these hidden incentives, right? That, uh, that exist within, within the endowment, whether that's on the program side, where there are incentives or on the investment side, you know, market returns, uh, there are incentives tied to those types of things. How do we address that? And, and then what, what can we do to help foundations think, think differently? Uh, is there, is there any incentive that exists or an incentive that we should be pursuing to really, in, to spur foundations, uh, to think differently and to aggressively look at their capital as, uh, as uh, risk, risk capital? Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is a two hour long conversation. Yeah. Actually, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just sort of, I'll just sort of hop in here. For yeah, a second. please. And then I'd I mean, love look, Astra to jump in on as well. Um, first I'll be provocative. Please let's do it. I think that you asked, what is the problem? I think one of the problems is that investment committees are dominated by late middle-aged white men who have built their careers in the financial services industry. And they are so emotionally powerful in that conversation because of the insecurities, the systemic insecurities of the people that surround them, that even if the staff, the executive team, and the majority of a board of directors are interested in, for example, pursuing impact investing, there'll be some dude in the room. And, you know, he's going to look like me. He's going to be in his mid-50s to, to mid-60s. He's going to look, you know, competent and professional. And he's going to sit there with his arms crossed. And he's going to say, we can't do that because that's too risky. And the conversation will die. <laughs> I've seen it over and over and over again. And so to be provocative, to solve that problem, you have to fire that person from the board of directors. Because until that happens, and maybe, you know, maybe we get $5 million from each of the largest foundations in, in the country, and we buy an island somewhere, and we make it the retirement home for <laughs> investment chairman emeritus, right? And we say, hey, you've done a great job on this board for 20 years. Like, go to this private go. island and, yeah. and like live out a wonderful life and we'll replace you with a young, um, you know, financial profession who gets this, right? Yeah. So that's, that's one. But I think that, you know, more pragmatically, um, what we try to do really hard at Caprock is to create that safe, quiet place where foundation staff, be the investment committee or executive or programmatic can step into and ask questions about what this actually means to them. And as soon as we show them that we can meet their long-term asset liability matching challenges with an impact investment portfolio, and we just show it to them, and we're not, we're not yelling at them with statistics, we're not arguing with them about what they could or could not do, we just sort of create that really quiet space. It's remarkable how easy it becomes. Yeah. And so I think part of the problem is that the advisory world has been going about this in totally the wrong way. They've been trying to beat them with data, mm -hmm. argue them with morality, well, or and that, and Astrid, you know, I'd love challenge. To, yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. That's great. And and Astrid, <laughs> I want to get to you. But like I said, it's two hours. <laughs> well, but it, it it's really tied to your you know market return discussion as well because everybody hides behind and it's fascinating because this field is so young when you look at it. It's so young and yet so many things become entrenched. And, and we become dogmatic and like, we can't do this. It, you know, it violates for your fiduciary responsibility. And it's like, by whose definition? You're like, what, yeah. let's talk about this a little bit because it's just asinine when we talk about market returns or we talk about impact investing and you can't do this. I've heard that so many times from accountants, lawyers, wealth managers. And it's because that's how they were trained and raised up to, to kind of you know, think about these things. You know, the, the, an easy way for any foundation to do this, right? Or any trustee to do this is like, think about what your governing document is, right? Your governing document is your mission statement, your bylaws, right? Like, why do you exist in the world? What are you mm -hmm. here to do? And then you take all your investments and audit them. What mm -hmm. I would love to see is a massive audit of all the investment decisions by all the foundations in the US. And then what you find very quickly is that the vast majority of uh, vehicles that they're invested in are, are, are managed by white middle-aged guys. Yeah. And that's fine. There's some percentage of the population that they represent, but it shouldn't represent 100% of your investment portfolio or your investment managers or your investment advisors, right? It's a simple audit. And if you, all you have to do is hold yourself accountable to your own governing documents, 
which arguably is the highest fiduciary duty yeah. of any board of directors in the first place. And then, and then you start acting. The next step would be to say to then take take remedial action, right? My my favorite uh, exercises, and anybody can do this because 990 forms are public, right? You can inspect them. You look at a 990 form of the Ford Foundation, and it's illuminating, right? Because out in the world is Darren Walker, an incredibly charismatic, thoughtful. Uh, just about, uh, you know, just this sort of unicorn executive, right, of a, of a foundation <laughs> he uh, who, who hits on, who hits on, checks off all the boxes in all the ways, right? Like he, he was on the other side of brand making, his life experience uh, represents a number of underrepresented communities, et cetera, et cetera. Well, guess who makes more money? He or the chief investment officer of the Ford Foundation? Pop quiz, you know? CIO. <laughs> That's pretty well known. <laughs> By a factor of what? Oh, I, I don't know that, but it's probably at least two. 2.5. Gosh. So if you want to know where the power is in any foundation, just look at the highest paid staff. Hmm. It's simple. Anyone can do this. You can do this with the foundations you work for, Matthew, right? And see if they have actually implemented this, right? Because the moment the CIO is still higher paid than the CEO, the, 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 the power balance still sits on the side of preserving the endowment, managing to financial returns, and justifying programmatic activities ultimately through that lens. How's that for provocative? <laughs> <That's great. laughs> so, and then I, I would actually take it a step further. Yeah. So if we're being provocative, Please. right? So after that audit, what I would like to see is like, especially this moment we live in now, right? Our local foundation here, largest local foundation here in Oregon, the Meyer Memorial Trust, just uh, today or yesterday announced a $25 million commitment uh, to black resilience in the state. And if you, if you want to be a student of history, I highly recommend the history of the state of Oregon, which is literally built by the Ku Klux Klan, right? So this is a state that has just some remedial work to do mm. in uh, fighting white supremacy and, and, and writing the balance here a bit. Um, and it's a, um, it's fascinating to see how they're how they're thinking about that, right? And it's it's fascinating to to see those kinds of commitments actually, in their case, translate into a, a, a diving into their endowment. Now, I, I I don't know if they if they have actually divested from something egregious, or if it's just a function of the way the financials are playing out that they're dipping into their endowment for this commitment. But the very lo next logical step would be to divest yourself mm -hmm. from the assets that are not aligned with your mission in the world, right? Whether those are funds that are being managed by people that are not representative of the communities you serve, or, and this is complicated for big foundations, you know, whose initial wealth came from extractive industries and extractive practices, right? Do you take it a step further and think about reparations, mm. right? If you're, and that's, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting way, I think, for um, the heirs and sort of third, fourth generation family members to think about their their responsibilities uh, on on the boards of foundations. Well, one of the largest foundations that we work with, Astrid, is um, based in Colorado, and they happen to have a twenty five year sunset. Um, it's two pools of capital: one commercial, one philanthropic. Roughly one third commercial, roughly two thirds philanthropic. Um, but the founder, uh, the creator of the wealth. Um, made the decision several years ago when he sold the, the pr principal asset, which was an oil refinery business, um, to sunset into the communities that had generated the wealth for him mm -hmm. during his lifetime. And for him, it wasn't really about reparations. I don't think there was an enormous amount of, of guilt there. It was more a real sort of deep-seated respect mm -hmm. for these primarily rural, primarily marginalized Colorado communities which had been kind of cast adrift by the reality of the demographic shift in Colorado over the last 50 years. And I think, um, you know, thinking about that sort of, you know, kindly, opportunistically, whatever, has allowed that particular foundation to focus on community resiliency and children as a really long-term strategy towards rebuilding communities um, in, in rural Colorado. But I, I, I hear you, that audit, that audit process is really interesting, but you know, the MRI is a mission related piece is even bigger because it's a, it's, it's a very simple process mm. to just gut check your investments against your mission. And I think you're right, uh, Astrid, I bet very few foundations would, would pass an audit like that <laughs> with a clean record. <laughs> 
Well, so in the, in the final paragraph of the article that you sent over, uh, he mentions, he says, in the three decades since 1969, the membership, the membership of Congress has changed many times over. Administrations <laughs> have come and gone, but that essential evaluation of private foundations has never since been the subject of serious challenge in either cron- Congress or an administration. So I, I kind of throw that out because it was, hit me really hard, but at the same time, like, what is the role of the federal government? Should should the government readdress this or, or am I hearing from both of you that this should be more a value of the foundations themselves, that they should see this as part of their mission, that their bylaws govern what they do and they should elect to do this themselves or should the federal government readdress some of these things and really look again at the mandates around uh, charitable spend, at the mandates around uh, sunsetting uh, that have, that were brought up in the 1960s. I'll go. Um, you know, I think, um, I mean, in, in general, I'm, I'm skeptical mm. about the, uh, the capacity of uh, the federal government to design all the things and all the ways we need them to. It's just where I was going, Esther. Um, uh, and, or and but. also, we live in unusual times, right? So I could imagine a scenario in which because of the, just the, the sheer enormity of the time we live in, right? Where we're reside, we're, the, the, the goal ahead now, the, the, the task ahead is to imagine a new post-pandemic, uh, you know, post-racist economy and be really and, serious. And post-carbon. And post-carbon, and post-carbon, oh, by the way, right? So here's like the triple yeah. whammy. And, you know, the an incoming administration, certainly of the democratic persuasion, could take this as sort of a moment in history, right? Where we're basically creating a new New Deal, right? Where where we're interrogating all the all the existing infrastructure, and that's where then the philanthropic sector, along with everything else, right, would deserve uh, to be examined in terms of how it could be more useful in building the new economy, right? And it's in that context one could then imagine. Uh, you know, a moment where we say, well, actually, you know, that trillion dollars on your balance sheets uh, is super helpful as the highest risk, most catalytic capital. Uh, And so there is a different collective expectation as a society about how you how you use your assets. Hmm. I I don't I don't think so. I I would I would see it more as part of a systemic solution as opposed to, you know, solving for this point problem of how this yeah. one particular industry functions. All the industries have to function differently, including the philanthropic industry. That's a good point. Yeah. And like Astrid, I, I, I harbor some skepticism that the government would get it right. Um, and therefore I'm hesitant to suggest that, yeah, the government needs to solve this. And I think it's partly cultural as well as you know what we were talking about earlier. As long as we continue to sort of adulate slash canonize the extremely wealthy with the sort of billionaire savior complex that we seem to have around massively wealthy philanthropists, I think it's going to be really difficult to, um, to move to a place of sort of a more egalitarian, but a more sort of a more functional role for philanthropic capital in our society. And and yeah, I mean, this just feels like a really pressing time. And you know, maybe it's, maybe it's something really simple. Maybe it's a combination of a point solution and a systemic solution where the government says, okay, for the next five years, you're going to double your, you double double your mandatory, uh, mandated granting. So it's ten percent rather than five percent. You won't put at risk the perpetual funding capacity of your vehicle, but you're going to really be accelerating it for the next five years. You know, maybe it's something like that. I mean, I'm not I'm not a policy expert in any way, so I just sort of made that up. Um, <laughs> well, but I think, but, but I think, no, please go ahead. Esther's, I, I mean, Esther's core observation is spot on and that it's not really a point solution, despite the f- sensation that we have that the, er, the matter, the, the, the matters are so pressing and so urgent that it feels like a point solution, but it's not really right. It's a systemic challenge. And it's interesting. I, I the, the pause kind of threw me back at first as it related to kind of the role of the federal government, but I'm in the same boat, but we have a kind of a vacuum of leadership. And so it's interesting to kind of see different organizations trying to step in and recognize, okay, how do we create this new economy post-COVID, post-carbon, post-racist uh, uh, community? Uh, what does that look like? Who's, who's, whose role? What role do I play? What yeah. role does my organization play? And it's interesting to see different, different organizations step up and try to, try to figure that out. I'm curious if, if either of you, and probably in, in closing, but two things. 
is there anybody that you're you're seeing that's doing it well that you you think wow they're they're doing something different uh, that you that maybe 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 people aren't aware of um, or trying something just trying something in their community that would be helpful to kind of highlight uh, for our listeners to kind of look at and to, to give consideration for as they look at their own community, their own organizations, their own, um, their own wealth. Uh, and that's the first one. And then the second is, as we think about this idea of existing into perpetuity or sunsetting, what are some of the, what are some of the things and, and Matthew might have like just the experience of working with different families. What are some things people should be, what questions should they be asking themselves as they make these decisions? Um, so that they can really get their values and their purpose and their mission and their money all kind of lined up together. So it's a bigger question, but I'd love for each of you to kind of answer that in closing, if you could. Just before, before I'll, I'll go first and I'll sort of leave the final, the final cleanup hitter. Is that the right term yeah. in baseball? <laughs> cleanup hitter. There you go. <laughs> German. I don't play um, baseball, but okay. I'm, I'm American and I don't really know it. So <laughs> we're probably in the same. My wife loves baseball and I've learned to appreciate it. There since you go. We've had a lot of fun watching some baseball games, but it's not in my, in my sort of history. I know that we in this, um, this community like to use the term values, but I'm going to reflect back on something that Astrid pointed out early on with the Odin Foundation. Um, you know, when, when we ask ourselves about being values-oriented investors. It's a phrase that sits quite comfortably with many of us. And yet I would argue that the most effective values-aligned investor in the, in the country today is not sort of the Tom Steyer, Ford Foundation, et cetera world. It's actually the Koch brothers uh -huh. because they have harnessed their political, philanthropic, commercial, and um, personal capital more effectively than anybody else. They control the conversation on mm -hmm. many levels. That's exactly where my mind was going. You know, it's sort of the, it's sort of the, the, it's sort of the, the completeness, right, of all your assets and all your pursuits. Are they, are they aligned with your purpose? And um, anybody can ask themselves that, right? You don't have to be a, a billionaire, uh, but it's it's helpful if you have some resources that you can harness. Are they really aligned with what you're trying to do in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And as Matthew was saying, the Koch brothers exemplify this par excellence, right? There's nobody who does it like them today. Uh, what's what's a little bit sad about that example is we don't have that equivalent uh, yeah. on on the other side of the political mm. spectrum, right? And so what we have instead, so another way to say that what I just said is like, so one question people can ask themselves is, is everything I do and how I spent my my resources and my assets aligned with my purpose, mm. right? And and for an example for what that looks like when you do it at grand scale, look to the Koch brothers. The other the other thing you can be asking yourself is, is anything I do not aligned? Is it horribly misaligned? Does it cause dissonance, right? And I would again point to our friends at the Ford Foundation, right, who just went out into the bond markets to raise an extra billion plus uh, using the mainstream capital system that <laughs> we know suppresses and, and underserves black communities. And then they're going to take that funding and they're going to give it to social justice organizations working in black communities. That is cognitive dissonance. <laughs> that is just, and can we just That's avoid That's so funny because there's a part of me that totally agrees with you, Astrid, and there's a part of me that feels like, well, that's actually exploiting a system which has historically marginalized the communities you're trying to serve by extracting money from that system to provide support for the communities that need. And I don't know the details there. They've not tethered themselves for the next 30 years, 30 years. to the mainstream bond markets, <laughs> to that system. But I think there are other ways you could do that, right? So I think, I mean, we were talking about can you avoid that kind of level of dissonance, right? So in that, yeah. if the goal was if the goal was to mobilize some resources, they could have done with a few more zeros what our friends at Maya Memorial Trust did, which is liquidate part of their endowment, yeah. three billion of which are sitting in you know all white, all male dominated VC and PE funds. So yeah. there's your three billion that you could have had. Anyway, so I think there is. Um, so there is, it, it goes back to that alignment, right? The core alignment that, between your purpose and your business practices is what it comes down to. Yeah. And, and alignment and decision-making, I think is what I'm hearing you. It, it's not so yeah. much, there's the capital, like where the money goes, but then in the decision-making itself, okay, if, if we're working with marginalized communities, is this the best approach given that the history of Main Street lending has been extractive in, in poor communities? Um, specifically black and brown. Um, so is that the best approach? 
for right. the long term to sell ourselves. And I ourselves. have no idea, could they have found a black owned bank? I have no idea, right? I mean, there's other ways you could have, even if you had had you wanted to stay, and a lot of people are excited at just the, the, the financial engineering of that deal, yeah. and hooray, and that's innovative and whatnot. Uh, but there may be, there may have been other banking partners they could have contemplated. Yeah. Did it have to be JP Morgan and Wells? <laughs> I hadn't thought about that to mention because it would have been really interesting to build a consortium of CDFIs and other lending facilities that could have in aggregate created that billion dollar pool of capital, which would have perhaps come along with a slightly higher cost of capital, probably. But then that higher cost of capital, the marginal cost of that would have increased in that interest margin from the lending institutions, thereby making them more resilient from a cash flow perspective. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that dimension of it, Astra. That's really, God, again, there's, there's my <laughs> cognitive bias, right? It's like, well, if you need a billion dollars, where do you go? Where do you, you tap go? the bond market, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. So I'm, I'm glad you were able to pick up that thread from my book, brother. <laughs> but I'd love to have you continue and, and, and close us out. I was just going to say, you know, three really great examples that have, of foundations that we're working with that we have the great privilege to work with who are doing innovative things. You know, first, you guys, Access Ventures, that whole like ink spotting real estate as core to community resiliency. It's like it's a really innovative way to think about using your your capital to um, to sort of in, in encourage, enhance, and support community resiliency. Like spot on. And yet it's a relatively small corpus that you guys are deploying, and yet I think you guys are punching way above your weight, <laughs> both from a thought leadership perspective and from an efficacy of capital capital deployment perspective. And I'm really proud to be you know a distal part of that. Um, the Gary Community Investments, who I mentioned earlier, the Colorado Foundation, I think that if they're successful in this audacious goal they have of sunsetting without simply accelerating granting, I think that will be a model that will change the way that foundations think about accelerating um, program-related investments, not just program-related you know, uh, distributions. I, I think the world of those guys, and they are constantly asking themselves whether or not they're doing it well enough, good enough, more aggressively, et cetera. And it's just a great team of people down there. Um, and then the third one is a, a, another smaller foundation, sort of like you guys, um, the Edwards Mother Earth Foundation. When they first came to us, they said, hey, we're sort of thinking about doing sort of a 10% carve out that's in alignment with our mission. And if you sort of pay more than five seconds worth of attention to the title of the foundation, you know exactly what their mission is, right? It's all about climate. Uh, climate resiliency. Um, and in the process of the RFP, we convinced them to not only hire us, but to go hundred percent in, like we weren't just, we weren't saying a 10% we'd like, if you're going to hire us, you're going to go all in. Cause that's what we do. Um, and to their credit, it's a small family foundation. They're not sophisticated investors, but they have absolutely stayed with us. And, um, we did a case study, post case study on them um, a year or so ago that traces their journey and they're 100% invested. Every single dollar they have, both programmatic and investment is oriented to climate resiliency with a specific focus on the built environment. And they're just like, they're just all in in a totally committed full body contact way. And it's just cool to, it's just so cool to be working with a group of people like that who are willing to see their capital as R and D capital for this whole new kind of economy that we're talking about. Um, So I think, yeah, I'd flag those three. No, that's that's great, and I appreciate you hum- humbled you would include us. So, where I've been very impressed is uh, with the Sergna Foundation. Oh yes, uh, oh, yeah. we've been doing some work with their inclusive economies team. By we, I mean uh, Zebus Unite and specifically Zebus Unite Capital. We're doing some work with uh, Common Future mm. and the Sergna Foundation on uh, something we're calling the Inclusive Capital Collective, where we're imagining a sort of radically um, distributed and community-owned uh, financial and technical infrastructure to support the flow of capital and uh, technical assistance into underserved communities. And there, you know, they have, I think the Certain Foundation has succeeded, I've met some of the trustees at doing that deep audit uh, at all different levels of the organization and have really sat with the question of racial equity. Mm. And it now permeates everything they do and they have operationalized it such that, for example, in our project, right, we not only have the attention of the program staff who just show up as part of this core project team, not as some, you know, distant grant maker somewhere, but they're actually rolling up their sleeves and working with us. But we've had their, their investment officer along with us from the get-go so that whatever we're building is designed to scale, right? It's designed to be, be able to hand it off to the impact investing and the, the corpus investing side of the house and help them cultivate their peers. And that's that's some of the more integrative and integrated thinking that I've seen um, in the foundation world, sort of sitting on the other side of that fence. No, that's awesome. And Astrid, as a tiny um, confirmation, 
of Serna's role and commitment to this. Um, they did an RFP not long ago for a new advisor and we made it to the final round and we're not chosen. And what they told us, and I love this answer, they said to us, you guys are clearly the high IQ solution here. Like what you guys are doing is sort of ahead of anybody else in the field. But as a social justice organization, we cannot have a bunch of middle-aged white guys telling us how to invest our money. And so I think that that level of commitment, like their willingness to um, be super clear and transparent about that and seek and then support and develop advisors who might not be where we are right now in terms of our capacity to deploy capital like this. I just thought that was awesome. You know, and if, if you're going to lose, powerful. if you're going to lose a relationship, yeah. like please let it be for, let yeah. it be for reasons like that. Yeah. Um, and it's a challenge to us to think much more structurally about mm-hmm. the composition of our company. Yeah. So yeah, it's great. Love those yeah, guys. another and it's uh, that's a that's a that's great confirmation. And um, sorry for you, but not sorry because yeah. now you get to do some of the important <laughs> yeah. work. I mean, the the necessary work, right, in your company. Yeah. Um. There's a there's an individual. So we're doing a little bit of advisory services at at Zebus United Capital as well, and um, we're working with an individual who is um, uh, exiting in, in the tech industry and is thinking about sort of their next adventure in uh, in philanthropy. And it's been really fun working with somebody who comes with that consciousness from the get-go, right? Mm-hmm. Where the moment we even presented what a standard foundation looks like, they said, oh God, no, not that. <laughs> Give me anything else, right? And there's some wonderful research that came out of the Walton family office, uh, mm-hmm. Sharon Snyder and, um, oh, forget her co-author now, presented at SoCap, I think, a year and a bit ago, uh, basically on like 16 different hybrid models. And so there mm-hmm. is actually beginning to be a body of work that you can point to, whether it's, you know, whatever you think of the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, right, and, and other creatures of, of, of the sort of the next, the new breed, there are some really innovative things that, that sort of the newer philanthropists are experimenting with that are, that are pretty exciting, yeah. that, that lend themselves to that deep alignment, right, between uh, purpose and, and operations. If you've enjoyed today's conversation and want to explore more about our approach to deploying capital, And consider learning how our one-pocket mindset puts your mission at the center of your strategy and ultimately at the center of all of your investments. Learn more about what our one-pocket investing is, its history, and why it matters today by downloading our white paper at accessventures.org. If you have enjoyed this episode, check out our other conversations and drop us a review. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Thanks for listening.